Okay, let's continue our efforts to unlock the book of Colossians as we progress into our tenth study, thinking tonight about breaking with the past, breaking with the past. I want to read from Colossians 2 and verses 16 through 23. I anticipate us concluding chapter 2, so next week we can move into chapter 3. Colossians 2.16, Paul writes, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principle with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with the self-imposed worship, the false humility and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the Word of God. A challenging scripture. Let's just pray for grace, shall we? Father, we thank you for these challenging verses in more ways than one. Help us to understand what the Apostle was endeavouring to communicate to this first century church in Colossae. Help us also to have ears open to what the Holy Spirit is saying through these verses to this 21st century church in Ponte. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The remainder of chapter 2 is, as I see it, though it might be interpretational from your perspective, as I see it, it's all about superstition, charms, astrology, potions, spells, etc. In the ancient world, whether you were a Gentile or, in many cases, even a Jew, when you had a problem... Maybe illness, perhaps you were disappointed in love, maybe struggling with a lack of financial resource. You pieced together a list of the names of various angels and powers and deities, small d. One could pick and mix, if you like, the names of these spiritual powers often Jewish angels, 
often even using and mixing them with the names of God, and perhaps even mixing them together with a pile of Gentile deities. This, as we have previously ascertained in these studies, is known today as syncretism. Mix all the spiritualities in a big pot, and uh, in doing so, uh, some good will come for you. And if you like, throw a splash of the Lord Jesus Christ in there as well. Once you had completed your spiritual pick and mix, you could call upon all these powerful beings at one time to help you. And I believe that contextually, this is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in verse 18, when he writes of the worship of angels. When Paul talks about the worship of angels here, he isn't necessarily speaking about actually worshipping angels per se, or mystically joining in the worship of angels. Rather, as I see it, people were calling on angels to come and assist them. It was part of this kind of eclectic mix of spiritualities spiritual identities, this middle ground that we've spoken about previously in these studies. And what Paul is endeavouring to do, therefore, and this is my paraphrase, he's saying, guys, you don't have to call on other mediators. The only mediator you need is Christ. Now, it's easy for us, I suppose, as Christians to understand and embrace that wholeheartedly. But put yourself in the shoes, if you can, of the first century Christians in Colossae. Uh, a very different context to ours, of course. And they were young Christians, young in the faith. They didn't have the kind of spiritual, theological resources that we benefit from. They didn't have the New Testament that we have. And perhaps they might, might have uh, some of the, the Old Testament scriptures to work from, from time to time. Um, and so, from their point of view, whenever they faced trials and, and difficult circumstances, they went back to what they knew, what they understood, what they were saved from, if you like. This eclectic mix of spiritualities. And what Paul is saying here is, friends, brothers, sisters, you don't need to call upon all of these spiritualities. He doesn't say it, but he was inferring it. They're dead anyway. They don't exist. All you need is Christ. All you need is Christ. No matter what we face, since all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus, verse 3, remember, we do not need to go anywhere else except to Jesus. Therefore, we should not spend our time worrying whether we have doffed our cap, so to speak, at this particular power, or paid our penance to that particular principality, or whether we have inadvertently strayed into some evil spirit's territory. Paul says, that in Christ we have a great victor, and thus we are set free from all of these bondages. He's exhorting these Colossians, break free from the past. It's bondage. And lay hold of Christ, because he is the only mediator you need. Growing up in Liverpool, I never 
really questioned the immensely superstitious culture that I had inherited. Not walking under ladders, for instance. Touching wood. And that's a laminate, so that's no good. (laughs) Or perhaps not putting up an umbrella indoors and, and all these superstitions. I grew up with that. And even though I was growing up in a, in a Christian home, there was so much a, a normal part of, of life. So much a common practice. Now, Liverpool, of course, is a keen football city. And everywhere, fierce rivalries were coupled with superstitious practices. Many supporters would wear a particular lucky scarf or a lucky pair of socks or grasp a lucky little amulet whenever they travelled to their respective places of worship, be it Anfield or Goodison Park. (laughs) That's the reality of it. But how easy it is that these secular philosophies find their way into church. I remember as a a pastor coming to the valleys for the first time. 1999, we came to Aberdeer, Aberdeen in Tricanon, and uh, doing some uh, pastoral visitation. I remember on more than one occasion chatting with Christian folk, good Christian folk, who occasionally, inadvertently or otherwise, says, oh, yes, such would pastor. And I thought, excuse me? Does that help? We laugh about it, I suppose. Arguably it's innocent enough if it's inadvertent. But it's not right, is it? And if we're not careful, like the Colossian Christians, we can find ourselves falling back into old, bad habits. And we need not, dear friends, Because Paul says that all of these old bad habits, it's all totally inappropriate as Christians. Christ washes away all of this nonsense. We don't need it. All we need is Christ. No matter how much people witter on about their spiritual experiences, such experiences, my friends, are not self-authenticating. Okay, says Paul. This is my paraphrase of 18, verses 18 and 19. Okay, so you've had a significant spiritual experience. So you've had a a significant spiritual encounter. So what, he says? So what? Are you pressing on with Christ? It isn't just about spending time on the floor, slain in the spirit, Beneficial though that might be. It isn't just having our hands in the air as we enthusiastically worship God from Sunday to Sunday. Blessed though that experience is. It isn't just doing whatever spiritually rocks our boat, so to speak. No, what really matters, infers the Apostle Paul here, is living a life of personal surrender to God. What really matters is walking close to Jesus on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Yes, we know of those 
who wax lyrical about their spiritual experiences and spiritual encounters. That's fine. But what Paul is saying is, but how is it today? How is it now? Are you walking with Jesus now? Paul adds a warning here, doesn't he? He's saying, look out, lest people overburden you with a shed full of unnecessary practices. Overburden you with mere form, mere ceremony, mere tradition. This is something the church has suffered from throughout the centuries, hasn't it? Form and ceremony and, and circumstances. And I suppose, if we're not careful, we impose these things on other people and on the unchurched. But Paul says, be careful. This is what he's getting at in verses 20 through 21. He speaks about being careful that we don't submit to the world's rules. He mentions, by way of example, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I've done a little bit of research, I'm not entirely sure what he's referring to there. Maybe certain practices within ancient pagan practice or, or, or temple worship, or maybe even within the confines of the, of the synagogue. <laughs> um, but he's saying, don't worry about these things. These People try to impose these things upon you, but that is, in effect, legalism. And we all know what happens when we embrace legalism. We become bound. Bondage ensues. All these little petty rules, says Paul, uh, are merely an appearance of wisdom, he says. But they cannot make us genuinely good people, or they can't make us Christ-like. Paul concludes in verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with the self-imposed worship, the false humility, the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value. That's a shot across our bows, isn't it? Whenever we get on our, our pedestals and soap boxes and wax spherical about the, the wonderful traditions of our particular denomination, the wonderful traditions of our particular church, and, and nothing wrong with these things per se. It's all a, a question of perspective. And Paul says, be careful, be careful, because these things will bind you. We are free in Christ, says Paul. And he's encouraging them to break from the past. Be that past, the, the, the middle ground of spiritual deities and spiritual traditions and the worship of angels. Uh, be that past, uh, ancient traditions of the world, he says. Break free from it. Don't get into bondage, he warns. He says, rather, verse 19, rather stay connected. That's the inference, isn't it, here? He's saying, stay connected. Connected to who? Connected to what? To, to, to ancient tradition? No. To, uh, to generational uh, habit? No. Stay connected to what? Stay connected to the head. To Christ. Now, of course, whenever we read Paul's epistles, we regularly come across this, this motif, don't we? As Christ the head, the church, uh, the body. 
Uh, and I like it because I understand it, don't you? <laughs> because if you re- remove my head, many would like to, if you remove my head from my body, <laughs> then my body won't function. Because it doesn't receive any of the motor neuron signals that the brain will send to send my body doing this, that and the other. And so it is, says Paul, so it is, that you must stay connected to the head. So the inferences, the inferences that being bound to all of the past traditions, uh, the, these worldly rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, it says being bound to all of that will disconnect you from the head. That is Christ. And so arguably, what, one of the greatest challenges for the Christian these days uh, is to stay in a living, vital connection to Jesus. That's why we pastors wax lyrical about uh, short accounts, spending time in devotion and prayer in the Word of God, so that you stay connected to the head. It's interesting, isn't it, that he... The Apostle Paul again, and, and not so much in Colossians, but if you want to, to read more about uh, this, this use of, of this motif of Christ the head, uh, the church, the body of Christ, then maybe Ephesians is, is, a, is a better epistle. But, but nevertheless, um, we Christians should stay connected with the head, but also with the church, connected with the church, uh, connected with each other, connected with other Christians. There are some silly Christians these days who actually think that they're going to make it to heaven with all guns blazing, so to speak, without the help of other Christians. I think that's unscriptural, unbiblical. Okay, they perhaps went to this church, that church, and the other church, and didn't get on with people. Didn't like the other Christians. Well, we're not called to like each other, we're called to love each other. <laughs> and human beings, being what human beings are, complicated creatures... Um, with all manner of, of preferences and, uh, and uh, expressions and so on. We're never going to agree about everything all the time, but we must stay connected. Christ the head and connected with each other. You know, I must have been about eight or nine years of age before I realised that my grandfather had not single-handedly won the Second World War. <laughs> My grandfather was captured at Dunkirk <laughs> and spent five years in a holiday camp. <laughs> he called it Stalag 8B. It was a prisoner of war camp, of course. But I, I had this impression that my wonderful grandfather was uh, a little bit like uh, Rambo, the Rambo of Liverpool, who took on Hitler and his regime single-handedly and he won. Now, my grandfather might well have made a contribution to the war effort. We didn't win the Second World War on his own, did he? Of course he didn't. And so the Apostle Paul says here that you are part of the body, Christ the head. And you need to stay as part of the body with Christ the head. You need the church and you need other Christians because we're all in it together. No matter how good a rugby player you might be, even if you were the legend that is the Welsh wizard Barry John, can you 
Imagine taking on the New Zealand all, bl all blacks all by yourself. Of course not. As it happens, I can't imagine the whole Welsh team taking on the all blacks <laughs> presently, but that's my observation. <laughs> silly, you say. Of course it's silly. And this idea of isolating ourselves from the confines of the body is silly. At best, unbiblical and, and probably disobedient at worst. And so Paul stays, stay connected to Christ who is the head. And stay connected to the body because you're in it together. These regulations that Paul was referring to here in his latter verses of Colossians 2. These regulations that it seems were being imposed upon this young church. These believers in Colossae have the appearance of wisdom. I, I'm intrigued by that. Spend a few days meditating upon it. They have the appearance of wisdom. But Paul says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There's a lot of things coming our way these days, aren't there? Lots of things that have the appearance of wisdom. I was chatting to someone recently, a Christian, in this congregation, who had been referred to mindfulness classes. I wasn't sure entirely what it was. So I thought, well, I won't comment on it until I do a little research. Mindfulness. The power of positive thought, I suppose. And arguably, it seems okay. It has the appearance of wisdom. Isn't it far more wise if one's going to spend time in meditation to meditate upon the things of God? I believe it is. I believe it is. And so, brethren, we need to be careful with these things that have the appearance of wisdom. There's a huge market today in the area of self-improvement. I just, uh, just because I'm, I'm nosy, I like to nose through, through bookshops. And I was in town nosing through W.H. Smith, bumped into law. She had a coffee. She had a, she's addicted to coffee. <laughs> I passed the coffee shop. Get thee behind me, Satan. I said, <laughs> A victory won, a victory won. So I was praying for Laura as I went in victory. Hallelujah, Lord. Bless you. But I, but I saw a bookshop, one of my nemesis on my right-hand side there, W.H. Smith. Can't resist it. And I was in a bookshop. And there's a, there's a section, the, the spirituality section, they call it, don't they? All kinds of stuff on self-help. All kinds of stuff. CDs, DVDs, books, pamphlets about how to help oneself get better. Now you may end up looking better. You may end up ending feeling better. You might even be even look years better. But my friends, there is no guarantee that your heart is pure. Who might ascend the hill of the Lord, said the psalmist. Those who are physically strong? No. No. Those who are in tune with their mindfulness? No. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. All this self-help nonsense. 
That's as I see it. It will not give you a pure heart. It will not make your soul right with God. And so Paul says, stay connected to the head and be liberated from all that is past. I have had a, a couple of opportunities in my life to learn how to water ski. Now for somebody who uh, cannot even manage to roller skate, you can imagine my problem. The first time, I remember both times vividly, but the first time I had the lesson uh, to water ski, I remember vividly it was at a youth camp in Cricket on the Clean Peninsula in uh, North Wales about 20 years ago, I guess. And I went along, uh, I was fitted up with a wetsuit and a life jacket, uh, and I was told to hold this handle tightly, slightly bend my knees and keep them flex, and let the boat, to which I was now connected by a rope, I'm not sure if that's wise really, let the boat, to which I was now connected, take the slack and the strain, and then simply ease yourself and go with it, they said, go with it, and you'll be water skiing. It's great, they said. Right. Now, I didn't know you could drink so much of the Irish Sea and still be alive. <laughs> For the umpteenth time, the speedboat zoomed off because I'd let go of the rope. I was left bobbing like a cork in water, trying to look cool, but clearly looking pretty stupid, really. Now, my friend, who happened to own the speedboat, rolled around after about seven or eight times. I think he was getting as fed up as I. And they observed me bobbing up and down in the water. And I remember to this day him looking over the side of the boat and he asked me this question. He said, Doug, do you know what faith is? And I was really miffed. I thought to myself, well, I'm a theological graduate. I can give you a dissertation in faith if you want. But I didn't say that. Grace kicked in. And I simply said, pardon? He said, do you know what faith is? So I was gasping, exacerbated by this point. I said, Peter, just tell me. And he replied, faith is holding on. Do not let go of the rope. I knew I was missing something. You can never water ski if you let go of the rope. Because really, water skiing is, has little to do with your ability. And everything to do with the power that you receive by holding onto the rope. And so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. So it is with a, an effective walk in Jesus. It has little, nothing to do with my ability and everything to do with me holding on to the rope, if you like, that is connected to the power that is Christ himself. This communicates something about the nature of faith, isn't it? Whatever you do, hold on to the rope, says Paul to the Colossians. Stay connected to the head. And yet it distresses me in spite of these wonderful truths long since taught throughout the centuries. The Christians are dropping off here, there and everywhere. 
because they let go of the rope. They don't stay connected. At the opening ceremony of the 2002, I'm going back a bit now, but I remember it well, the opening ceremony of the 2002 Commonwealth Games, I remember because it was in Manchester, the well-known tenor Russell Watson sang a song. And he sang about having enough faith to reach the stars. Now I sat there at the time and I remember thinking, Russell, faith in what? What does it mean? Brethren, in scripture, it is faith's object that matters. A number of years ago I visited family in Canada. My cousin Colin and his family moved there quite a few years ago now and uh, I went to visit and I remember having very little faith in the densely packed ice on the lake. Very little faith. And yet Colin and the family were, were coaxing me, encouraging me onto the ice for a skate. And I doubted that the ice would support me. Colin said, listen, this ice can support a tank. <laughs> so it can certainly support you. You'll be safe. By way of contrast, I remember having boundless faith in some very thin ice that covered our local lake in the Curran Valley where I was living in Aberdeen, the Aberdeen Country Park. And I intended to skate. However, the ice gives way and despite my great faith, I could well have drowned by my great faith. You see, it matters. What? Who? We have faith in. The Colossians were struggling. There's no question about that. Because they had faith, great faith, in the thin ice. In the wrong things. Paul says, have faith in the head that is Christ. Densely packed ice, if you like. It's not going to let you down. It will not let you sink. If faith connects me to Christ, then I must not lose contact with him. Otherwise, instead of skiing and skimming over the waves of life, by the grace that connects me to his power, I will be taking in mouthfuls of salty water and feeling pretty grim and miserable. And there are many Christians that do. Faith in Christ, heartily trusting in Jesus, is the key to freedom from bondage and the key to fullness of life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful, challenging but wonderful scriptures. In some ways we feel reassured because we're not the only ones throughout the history of the Christian church who have struggled with these dynamics. Help us, Lord, to, to adhere to the Apostle Paul's exhortations. Stay connected to Jesus by that, that the rope of grace that's been extended to us. Let us hold on firmly. Stay connected. For in so doing, there is liberty and there is freedom. 
It is for freedom, says Paul, that Christ has set us free. Might we know and enjoy this freedom in these days. And as we do, know a purity of heart and a, a power in witness and testimony in Christ's name.